Days 18 through 20 of Think Well in It by Bishop Richard Chaloner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eighteenth day, on the small number of the elect. Consider first those words of Christ, Many are called, but few are chosen, which contain a great and awful truth, frequently inculcated by the mouth of truth itself, to rouse unthinking mortals from that profound lethargy into which the enemy has lulled them. This is one of those lessons which he has laid down for the foundation of Christian morality. In his divine sermon on the mountain, St. Matthew seven thirteen fourteen, where he exhorts us to enter in at the narrow gate, for broad is the gate, and wide is the way that leads to damnation, and many are they that enter by it. Oh, how narrow is the gate, and straight the way that leads to life, and how few are they that find it. Hence in the same sermon he declares, that not every one that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven, viz., by a faithful compliance with the law of God and his gospel. Without this, he assures us that he will avail us nothing, even to have done miracles in his name. Many shall say to me on that day of judgment, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and cast out devils in thy name, and done many wonders in thy name? And then I will declare to them that I never knew you. Depart from me, ye wickers of iniquity, Good God, what will become of us if those that have even done miracles in thy name shall nevertheless be excluded thy eternal kingdom? Consider secondly how many ways this frightful truth has been declared or prefigured in the Old Testament. Of all the inhabitants of the earth, only eight souls, viz. Noah and his family, were preserved in the ark from the waters of the deluge. Of the six thousand of the children of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt, under the conduct of Moses, only two persons, Joshua and Caleb, entered Canaan, the land of promise, which figure the apostle St. Paul expressly applies to us Christians, 1 Corinthians 10. To the same effect, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 24, 13, 14, likens those that shall escape the divine vengeance to the small number of olives that is left on the tree after the fruit is gathered, or to the few bunches of grapes that are found on the vines after a well-gleaned vintage. Ah, Christians, hear then and obey the voice of your Savior, who bids you, St. Luke 13.23, contend, that is, strive with all your force, to enter in at the narrow gate. For many, I assure you, shall seek to enter and shall not be able, because the generality of Christians, though they use some endeavors to enter, yet they do not strive with all their force. They are not thoroughly in earnest in their seeking, and therefore shall never find. Here again, with fear and trembling, the great apostle St. Peter, when he tells you that if the just will hardly be saved, where will the sinner appear? First Epistle, chapter 4, verse 18. O my soul, let us then take care, as the same apostle admonishes, Second Peter 1, by good works to make your election sure. And if others will go in crowds to hell, let us resolve not to go with them for company's sake. Consider thirdly, that though the scripture has said nothing of the small number of the elect, yet that this is truth must appear evident to us if we compare the lives of the generality of Christians with the gospel of Christ and his holy commandments. If thou wilt enter into life, says our Lord, Matthew 19, 
keep the commandments. There is no other way to life everlasting. And the first and greatest of all the commandments is this, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Matthew 22. Now how few are there that keep this commandment? It is easy to say with the generality of Christians that we love God with our whole hearts. But what is the practice of our lives? Do not self-love, vainglory, sensuality, etc. on every occasion take place. If so, it is in vain to say we love him above all things. And yet there is no salvation without this love. Think well on this. Besides, the Apostle James declares, chapter 4, verse 4, that whosoever will be a friend of this world becomes an enemy of God. And St. John, Epistle 1, chapter 2, verse 15, If anyone love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Nay, does not Christ himself declare that we cannot serve two masters? Matthew six twenty four. How then can we think to reconcile the conduct of the greatest part of those who call themselves Christians, whose whole study is to please the world and conform themselves to its false maxims, corrupt customs, and deluded vanities, with their expectation of the kingdom of heaven, which is not to be otherwise obtained but by violence to ourselves, renouncing the sinful world, and by a life of self-denial and mortification? Consider fourthly how great a corruption is generally found even amongst the greatest part of true believing Christians and from thence form a judgment of their future lot. How few are proof against human respects. The pernicious fear of what the world will say. Alas, what numbers sacrifice their eternal salvation to this accursed fear, by rather choosing to forfeit the grace of God than the false honor and esteem of this world. How many of those whose birth and fortune have advanced them above the level of their fellow mortals live continually in the state of damnation, by a cursed disposition of never putting up with an affront, and of preferring their worldly honor before their conscience. Unhappy men, who, by conforming themselves now to those false maxims of deluded worldlings, will be trampled underfoot by insulting devils for all eternity. How few masters of families are sincerely solicitous for those things under their charge. To see that instructions be not wanting, devotions be not neglected, etc., and that nothing scandalous or sinful lurk under the favor of their negligence or connivance. And yet the apostle assures us that if any man neglects the care of his family, he is worse than an infidel. 1 Timothy 5, 8. How few parents effectually take care to bring up their children from their infancy in the fear of God, and to inspire into them an early horror of sin above all evils. Ah, what a double damnation! will the greatest parts bring upon themselves by sacrificing these tender souls to the devil and the world, which they might have with so much ease have consecrated to heaven. In fine, not to run over all states of life in particular, is it not visible that injustice, impurity, pride, detraction, etc., everywhere reign among Christians, and that the number of those who live up to the gospel is indeed very small? Good God, have mercy on us, and grant us grace to be of the number of the few, that so we may be included in the number of the saved. Nineteenth day, on mortal sin. Consider first that there is not upon earth, or even in hell itself, 
a more hideous, filthy, abominable monster than mortal sin, a monster, the firstborn of the devil, or to speak more properly, the parent both of the devil and hell. There was not in the whole universe a creature more beautiful, more perfect, or more accomplished with all kinds of gifts, both of nature and grace, than was the bright angel Lucifer and his companions. Yet one mortal sin, and that only consented to in thought, changed them in an instant into ugly devils, just objects of horror and abomination to God and man. What effect, then, think ye will sin have upon man, who is but mere dust and ashes, if it blast so foully the stars of heaven? It was this monster, sin, that cast our first parents out of paradise, and condemned both of them, and us their posterity, to innumerable miseries, and to both a temporal and eternal death. It was sin that drowned the world with the waves of the flood, and daily crowds hell with millions of poor souls, to be the fuel of endless flames. Good God, deliver us from this accursed evil. Consider, secondly, that sin is the death of the soul, for as it is the soul of a man which gives life to his body, so consequently that body from which the soul has departed is dead. In like manner, as it is the grace of God which is the life of the soul, so that soul is dead which has lost her God and his grace by mortal sin. If then a dead carcass from which the soul has departed be so loathsome and frightful that few can endure to pass one night in the same bed with it, how is it possible, unhappy sinner, that thou canst endure to carry continually with thee the carcass of a soul dead in mortal sin, which is far more loathsome and hideous? Ah, beg of God that he would open thy eye to behold thine own deplorable state, and detest the hellish monster sin, which thou hast so long nourished in thy breast, and which is, alas, the true cause of all thy misery. Consider, thirdly, what the soul loses by sin, and what she gains in recompense of this loss. She forfeits the grace of God, the greatest of all treasures, and in the loss thereof she loses God himself. She loses the fatherly protection in favor of God. She loses the dignity of a child of God and spouse of Christ. She forfeits her right and title to an eternal kingdom. She is stripped of all the gifts of the Holy Ghost robbed of all the merits of her whole life, becomes a child of hell and a slave of the devil, spiritually possessed by him and with him liable to eternal damnation. This is all she gains by sin, because the wages of sin is death. Romans 6. The death of the soul here and a second and eternal death hereafter. Our wretched sinners, open your eyes to see and bewail your lamentable blindness and thus exchanging God for the devil, heaven for hell. Consider, fourthly, that sin is infinitely odious and detestable in the sight of God, as being infinitely opposite to his sovereign goodness. He hates it with an eternal and unnecessary hatred, and can no more cease to hate it than he can cease to be just. Hence, if the most just man upon earth were so unhappy as to fall into the least mortal sin, he would in that instant become the enemy of God, and were he to die in the guilt thereof, he would certainly feel the weight of God's avenging justice for all eternity. Ah, Christians, never let us be so mad as to venture to wage war with God. Alas, how many dreadful judgments does he daily exercise upon sin and sinners? How many in punishment of sin are snatched away in the flower of their age by sudden and unprovided death? How many die in despair? 
how many after having long abused god's graces are given up to a retrobate sense and hardness of heart the worst and most terrible of all his judgments oh let us tremble at the thoughts of so great a misfortune let us be convinced that there can be no misery so great as that which we incur by mortal sin and that we are more our own enemies and do ourselves more mischief by consenting to but one mortal sin than all the men upon earth and all the devils in hell could do to us though they were all to conspire together to do their worst because all they can do so long as we refuse consent to sin cannot hurt the soul whereas by consenting to one mortal sin we bring upon our own souls a dreadful and eternal death good god never suffer us to be so blinded as to become thus the murderers of our own souls consider fifthly o my soul and tremble at the multitude of thy treasons against god by which thou hast so often provoked his indignation during the whole course of thy life alas it is not too true that no sooner didst thou come to the use of reason than thou didst abandon thy king and thy god under the wings of whose fatherly protection thou hast happily passed the days of thy innocence ah how early didst thou fly away from the best of fathers and like the prodigal son squandering away thy substance in a strange land hast sought in vain to satisfy thy appetite with the husks of swine recall to thy remembrance in the bitterness of thy soul all the years of thy past life and see what treasures of iniquity and thought word and deed will discover themselves to thy eyes consider how long thou hast unconcernedly sported on the brink of a dreadful precipice having no more than a hair's breadth betwixt thy soul and hell and be confounded at thy past folly admire and adore the goodness of thy god and now at least resolve to embrace his mercy twentieth day on the relapsing sinner consider first that if one mortal sin be so heinous a treason against the sovereign majesty of god as we have seen in the foregoing chapter if every such sin be an abomination to our lord and the death of that unhappy sinner who is guilty of it what must we think of the miserable condition of lapsing sinners that is of such christians as are continually relapsing again and again into the same mortal sins after repeated confessions and solemn promises of amendment alas what can we otherwise think but that by this method of life they are treasuring up to themselves wrath against the day of wrath which will in all appearance sooner or later draw down the dreadful vengeance of god upon their guilty heads because by every relapse their crime is aggravated and their latter condition becomes worse than the former consider secondly the ingratitude the perfidiousness the contempt of god of which the relapsing sinner is guilty as often as after his reconciliation he returns like a dog to the vomit he is guilty of the highest ingratitude in treading underfoot the grace of reconciliation by which he had been a little before raised from the dunghill of sin and even drawn out of the jaws of hell and by a distinguishing mercy restored to their friendship of god to the dignity of a child of god and heir of heaven he is guilty of a base perfidiousness in breaking the solemn promise he made to god in his confession he is guilty of a notorious contempt of the divine majesty in banishing god from his soul after having invited him in and of introducing satan in his place and this after a full knowledge and experience of both sides 
good god to put the whole universe in balance with thee would be a most heinous affront since heaven and all the powers thereof the earth and the seas and all things therein are less than a grain of sand if compared to thee what then must we think of the unparalleled injury done thee by the relapsing sinner when putting thee and satan in the scales he gives the preference to the devil consider thirdly the dreadful danger to which the relapsing sinner is daily exposed from the sword of the divine justice hanging over his guilty head which he has daily provoked by his ingratitude and insolence alas we are all mortal we neither know the day nor the hour that will be our last should we be surprised by death in the state of mortal sin as millions have been we are irrecoverably lost if then it be madness at any time to risk eternity by consenting to mortal sin how much more to provoke the almighty by frequent relapses and a practice of abusing his grace and mercy at every turn ah what multitudes of souls have been thus betrayed into that dismal pit of never-ending woe where the worm never dies nor the fire is quenched unhappy wretches they designed as little to damn themselves as any of us do but god will not be laughed at consider fourthly another evil which the sinner who frequently relapses into the same sins has too just reason to apprehend is the insincerity of his past repentance for in reality what appearance is there that his sorrow and resolution of amendment have been such as god requires when after so many confessions he is still the same man true contrition is a sovereign grief by which the penitent detests his sin above all other evils with a full determination and a firm resolution of never returning to it any more now how is it likely that the relapsing sinner detests sincerely his sin above all evils with a firm purpose of amendment when he is so easily prevailed upon by the first temptation to return to it again consider fifthly the remedies and means by which we are to be preserved from this pernicious evil of relapsing into mortal sin the first is to avoid the dangerous occasions which have or probably may draw us into the same sins without this care to fly the occasions of sin the strongest resolution of amendments will prove ineffectual as we daily see by woeful experience for he that loveth the danger shall perish therein ecclesiasticus three no pretext of worldly concerns must here be put in balance with eternity we must part with hand or eye sooner than lose our souls another main preservative against relapse is to labor by frequent prayer and diligent frequenting of the sacraments to suppress the unhappy dispositions that insensibly lead thereunto vigorously to resist the first moment to evil and to strive with all possible diligence to root out that wretched propensity to sin which former sins have left behind in the soul ah how hard it is to maintain a castle where the enemy has already surprised the avenues and has a strong party within ready to open the gates to him the third and chief remedy against relapse is for the penitent to nourish carefully in his heart a truly penitential spirit daily to renew his sorrow for his sins and to recount in the sight of god in the bitterness of his soul all his past iniquities daily to admire and adore that mercy which has borne with him so long and to value above all treasures that grace of reconciliation by which he has been drawn out of so much misery daily to beg of god with all the fervor of his soul sooner to take him out of this world than to suffer him any more to die by mortal sin good god grant that this may be 
always the disposition of our souls. Amen. Amen. End of Days 18-20